Well, hello again. I'm Nurse Mo, if we haven't met yet, and I am so glad that you are here joining me in episode 211 of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today, we are diving into a much-needed topic about the transition period from new grad to actual working nurse, and we're going to talk about what to focus on in your first five shifts, okay? So even if you're not graduating soon, you can be thinking about these things because they can be kind of underlying what's going on as you're in clinical because as you're a student in clinical, you're always thinking about how am I going to take what I'm learning here and use it later when I'm the actual nurse, right? So keep listening no matter where you are in your nursing school journey. Now, before we jump in, I want to take a minute for a shout out to my San fam. That's my straight A nursing fam. This one goes to Andrew, who wrote the most thoughtful words in the podcast review. So Andrew writes, hello, Nurse Mo. I'm a senior nursing student, and I want to write the review to help bring to light how great and resourceful your podcast is for me, and to thank you for being amazing. I work on campus, which is a 30-minute commute, and at a long-term acute care hospital that is an hour commute from where I live. Needless to say, I spend too much time on the road. When I found your podcast, I realized that I struck gold. I listen to about 9 to 12 of your podcasts every week. I love that you're so informative, fun, and creative with your topics. You know all the right fluff to brush away, and you get right down to the nitty-gritty on all of your topics. I aspire to be as great and smart of a nurse as you are someday. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for providing me a venue to be productive and smart even on my long drives. So Andrew, thank you for taking the time to do that. And if you guys are commuting or have what you consider to be any kind of downtime, listening to the podcast is a fantastic way to study, learn new things, review things you learned in class, get a different perspective. And as Andrew says, Uh, the nitty gritty, right? So if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, take a minute to do that. Every episode that I air will show up for you automatically like magic without you having to do anything. It'll be right there. And I release every Thursday. Okay, so let's dive into what you're going to focus on in your first five shifts as a new nurse. So starting out as a new nurse It really can be one of the most challenging things, also most rewarding transformations that you will ever make. The learning curve is absolutely enormous. The stress at times can feel really overwhelming. And there there could be this feeling that you're not really sure what to focus on as you take on this new role, because there's so much. It's like drinking from a fire hose, right? So whether you're going through a formal residency program or just getting a down and dirty orientation, which could be happening because there's a big, big need for nurses right now. So you might be getting that really quick, um, hyper fast, fast track orientation. Focusing on these items in your first five shifts can help you kind of get your feet under you a little more quickly. I've broken these up into three categories. There's like a general category, a very nursing, 
you know, nursing role specific category and then technology category. Okay. All right. So for general things, and don't feel like you have to take notes because I do have a blog post associated with this episode. So I'll link to that. And then you can go read all of this there if you want to revisit what these things are. So very general things. First of all, just getting an idea of where things are in your unit. Your unit could have multiple storage areas, for example, like a supply room, a clean utility room, a dirty utility room, a medication room, an equipment room, maybe a bonus storage room, and different stuff is going to be stored in different places. And sometimes it doesn't always make sense. So take some time in each of these areas to learn what supplies, what equipment is stored there so you always know where to go. There's nothing more frustrating than wasting time searching and searching for something that you need, especially when you need it five minutes ago, right? So always knowing where things are can really make your day more efficient and make you more proficient. And again, it doesn't always make sense where things are, so don't make any assumptions. So for example, in the unit where I work, which is just drives me crazy, the little mini bags that you attach to your antibiotics, things that you reconstitute, you know, those little 50 mil, 100 mil bags, those are in the Pixis room, the medication room. All the other IV fluids are in the supply room. But when I'm in the Pixis room getting my antibiotic and I grab my little mini bag, the tubing for the secondary is in the supply room. So to me, that makes no sense. Like, why not put the tubing in the Pixis room or put the mini bags in the supply room. I don't know. So just things like that that don't make sense. The ICU where I worked for years kept the bath wipes in the equipment room, like with the bear huggers and the ultrasound machine and other random equipment, not in the supply room where you might think it would be. So get to know the layout, get to know what goes where, and how to find things, especially those things that you use the most often or that you anticipate needing quickly, like suction equipment or oxygen delivery supplies. I would say those things, know where they are at all times, know where they are from day one, okay? So that's the first thing. Just know where things are located, those general things. Get a lay of the land. Another general thing to work on in those first five shifts is learn how to communicate with and notify MDs. So you're soon going to learn that knowing who to call for a particular problem is really, really important. When your patient's having an acute problem, sometimes there's no time to waste to figure out who do I need to call. It's not always as cut and dried as you might think. So many times hospitals will contract out services, especially specialty services. So the MD you are calling may not be an employee of the hospital, right? So you have to know how to reach these people. You have to know how to call their service, for example, and get them paged and do all of those things. A lot of times um, the hospital may have different practices that cover the same service. So for example, the hospital where I have worked for a long time utilizes two different nephrology practices. So you have to know which practice to call to even know which physician 
to call or who to call for an on-call situation if you need to call the on-call nephrologist. Well, are they with this practice group or are they with that practice group? Um, So knowing who to call, really, really important. Another thing to consider is knowing who to call after hours. So the MD following your patient during the day probably not going to be the same person that you should be calling at 2 a.m. because there are call schedules, call rotations. And one way to not make friends is to call the wrong physician in the middle of the night. So knowing how to figure out the call schedule. So you always wake up or reach out to the right person is really, really important. And then another thing to know is that some units have a specific protocol or process for even calling the MDs. For example, if your facility utilizes hospitalists, the practice may be for you to call the resident first, not the attending, okay? Because they want the residents to get a lot of experience, right? So it might be, oh, no, no, you don't call Dr. Johnson, you call the family medicine resident. Here's their pager number, okay? So you have to know who to call. And some units may even have you funnel calls through the charge nurse, or maybe as your brand new funnel calls through the charge nurse so that you can get accustomed to the process and the decision-making and want information they need. So just make sure you know how to do that. You'll save yourself a lot of frustration in the process. And I always know as the nurse at the bedside, you know, there'll be times when you feel like you're all on your own. And and for brief moments in time, you absolutely are. If you're the only one in the room with your patient, you have to know how to respond to a situation, right? I feel less alone at the bedside when I know which physician to call when my patient has a problem. Because if my patient has a problem, I can do some nursey stuff for some things. But if they've got a big problem, they need doctor stuff. And if I can get the doctor and, you know, uh, reach them quickly, I feel so much better about things because I know the patient's getting what they need. And I know I've got another person on my team. So it just takes a ton of the stress away from me to know who I'm going to call when my patient has an issue. Another general thing to do in the first five shifts is to really pay attention and get the flow of the unit down. I'm talking about like the daily flow. Some things to take note of here are what are the unit standards for taking vital signs and performing assessments? So depending on the acuity level of the unit that you're working on, the standard could be full set of vital signs once a shift. It could be full set of vital signs three times a shift. If you're in the ICU, it could be full set of vital signs at a minimum every hour. More often, if your patient's on, like, say, a vasopressor where you would be getting a full set of vital signs every 15 minutes. So know the unit standards for taking those vital signs. And then performing assessments. So it might be full head to toe at the beginning of your shift. Have that in the computer by a certain time so that, you know, any rounding physicians or anybody else on the interdisciplinary team can see that information. It might be that that's done once a shift. It might be that full head to toe done at the very beginning with focused assessment later in the day. You might be doing these every four hours. If you're in the ICU and your patient 
is very sick. You're probably doing a full head-to-toe every four hours with focused assessments probably more often, maybe even hourly, especially if your patient has like a neurological deficit. So know the unit standards for taking vital signs and performing assessments. And then you always have to use your nursing judgment to know if more assessment is necessary. Like if your unit standard is to do a full head to toe, once a shift, and then a focused assessment around noon, if your patient has an issue, you're not going to not do a focused or full head to toe at 1030 just because it's not time. Of course, you'll do that. But know what the minimums are, okay? And then you also want to make note of what time rounding takes place, who participates in that, what your role is in that. In the ICU where I worked, the rounding um, situation was a whole big team, whole interdisciplinary team. And you had like a rounding script that you would go through and it would start with things like, you know, the patient's been here so many days. Um, here's what's been going on the last 24 hours. Here's, you know, they've been on the ventilator for this many days. They have a Foley catheter, this and that, this and that. You know, it was like just a script of basic things to be covered. And then that was like the team rounding. And we would make sure all their core measures were met, things like that. And then there would be individual rounding with different physicians throughout the day. Sometimes the physicians would come in in the morning before that big team rounding, and that was when you could get like all your down and dirty needs met for the patient. Um, sometimes it's after, you know, it just depends. It depends on their practice and and their workflow as well, but kind of have an idea of what's expected and when things happen and your role and who's participating. You want to know visiting hours, visiting guidelines, especially uh, during a pandemic when I feel like every week I go to the hospital, there's different <laughs> different rules um, and things like that. So just know what those are so that you're not conveying um, incorrect information to families because it, they get really frustrated if, um, A, they're not told the same things, and B, they are restricted from coming to visit. Um, that's really hard for families. You also want to get a feel for any standard treatment pathways. So for example, the cardiovascular surgery ICU in the hospital where I work has some pretty strict uh, treatment pathways, some guidelines for getting all of their unsedated patients up to the chair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, even if they've got chest tubes and these tubes and that and all these things, and those patients can have a lot going on. As long as the patient is stable enough, like hemodynamically stable enough to make those position changes, they get those patients up and out of bed without fail. And it's amazing. And it is not easy. It is definitely not easy to do. Um, It is a massive commitment to patient care to get patients out of bed that are full assist and have multiple lines, multiple tubes, multiple pieces of equipment. It takes a whole team, but it is so good for patient care. So knowing what are the standard treatment pathways um, around things like that. Know what, um, for example, another treatment pathway standard that I just figured out (laughs) because no one told me is that when I worked in a trauma neuro ICU, the standard was if the patient has a CT scan ordered, it is the responsibility of the night shift nurse 
to take that patient to the CT scan around 6 a.m. before the end of their shift. It wasn't something that day shifted when they got there. They wanted you to go before the end of night shift so that when the trauma surgeons came by to do their rounding, they had those scans. So knowing those types of things, knowing the standard treatment pathways. And then another thing is quiet time. Does the unit observe quiet time? That's a really important factor to consider as you're looking at the flow of the unit. So quiet times are periods during the day and during the night where the nurses really try not to disturb the patients unless it's really, really necessary. And what this does is the studies show it gives the patients much, much needed uninterrupted rest and sleep. So you may need to adjust your plan of care and cluster care so that you can help your patients observe quiet time if that's part of your unit practice and even possible. I know in the ICU where I worked, it was really hard to do quiet time for patients because they required such frequent interventions. But if your patient can tolerate it, if it's, you know, in the best interest for your patient, quiet time can be really great. And it's, if you want to do a little more research in this area, look at like sleep deprivation in hospitalized patients, lots of studies about it, and it can be extremely, extremely detrimental. Okay, so getting the flow of the unit, that was a lot there, but those kinds of general things. You also want to get to know your resources. So patient care does not completely fall on your shoulders. I'm happy to report it might feel like it does at times, but it doesn't. There's actually a whole interdisciplinary team that is working together to help patients meet their goals. So in your first few shifts, meet as many people from this interdisciplinary team as you can. Um, Maybe they'll be coming around with rounding, for example, or popping in to check on your patient. Ask them what their role is. Ask them how what they do fits into the patient's plan of care. Get to know what their job entails. Um, I was, you know, Something that I learned about the interdisciplinary, I can't even say that word, interdisciplinary team early on as a nurse is that speech therapists do these bedside swallow evals. I, for some reason, did not realize that or did not learn that in nursing school. So I learned that component. I learned, oh, if I need a speech, um, if I need a swallow eval, I call the speech therapist and they come to the bedside and do that. If I have questions about tube feeding, I'm not calling the physician, I'm calling the dietitian because the dietitian uh, determines that. So knowing what the team members are, what their role is, how they contribute to patients meeting their goals is really, really helpful because then you know who to call when you are needing to reach out on behalf of your patient. And then another thing to learn is more of like a HR thing is learn about the scheduling and how that works. I feel like I worked in the ICU for an embarrassingly long time before I knew how to ask for vacation days. And it's important to know how to do these things. So learn how to manage your schedule. Each unit has their own unique way of doing this. So it might be um, self-scheduling. So a lot of units will follow that. So know how to put in your schedule requests if that is the practice on your unit. Or if your unit uses a template, which hopefully you would know this at the time of hire, that your unit uses what's called a template, which is, I mean, this is what I had when I worked in the trauma neuro ICU. It's basically a set schedule. So I worked part-time on that unit. So I would like would work two days. 
um, you know, like Monday, Tuesday of one week, and then Thursday, Friday of the next week, and then, you know, Friday, Saturday of the next week, and then, you know, whatever. So it just rotated through. It was my template. So if that's how your unit does it, then you need to know that as well. Know how to request paid time off. Some units will have some pretty stringent guidelines around vacation that I don't think people with um, like office jobs can understand. Um, I used to like try to tell my friends, I can't go on that trip unless you tell me about it like four months in advance. Then I can request PTO. Like they'd be like, why you have to request that far in advance? And I'd be like, yes. And so sometimes, so for example, with the ICU where I worked for many years, if you were requesting off a whole week, so your your whole three shifts, that was only done once a year around November. So you had to be able to look at your schedule and plan out your big your bigger vacations and request that time off in November for like the following November or the following October. And it made it really hard to plan vacations with my husband. So just know how to do that. Are they, do they have limits? So it was usually it'll be, we can only guarantee two people off at a time and vacations would get denied. So you have to know how to request PTO, um, especially if it's more than like three shifts or if you're missing a whole week. Also, you want to know how the unit manages the holidays. Some, like the ICU I worked at, all the holidays were listed out and you had to rank them in the order of which ones you wanted I don't remember if it was rank them in the one you don't want to work the most or the one you want to work the most because you had to work a certain number. And so if you were like, okay, I want to work the day after Thanksgiving, I want to work Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, you would put those in as your preferences to work so that you could have the others off. So um, others, it might be more of a rotating schedule and you don't get to choose and it just if this is your year to work on, you know, the 4th of July, then this is your year to work the 4th of July. And that's just how it is. So know how the unit manages holidays. As a new nurse, there is so much to learn. When I first graduated and started in the ICU, I remember information coming at me constantly in so many ways. And I didn't want to miss a single bit of it. So I carried around a little notebook that I would just jot things down as I learned them throughout every shift. And I still have that notebook. And I tell you, it is absolutely full of gems. And this was on top of the giant binder of things I had to learn as well, because there really is just a lot to learn when you're transitioning into practice, which is why the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare is such a great opportunity. HCA Healthcare's Nurse Residency Program is designed to set up newly graduated nurses for success with benefits like access to company-wide clinical education programs, clear career pathways to help you reach your goals, student loan assistance and tuition reimbursement, 401k matching, and so much more. The year-long program is the best place to build a foundation for your career. With HCA Healthcare, you get hands-on clinical experience while developing your critical thinking skills. Plus, you'll have support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. 
For all of you upcoming and recent grads, I highly recommend checking out the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. And one more item related to your scheduling is to understand your unit's call-off policy. So when units have too many nurses or when they're overstaffed for the number of patients that they have for the patient census, that's the word we use, census, they will call off staff. Make sure you understand how this works and if you're able to request to be called off if you want to. So for example, let's say you could use a mental health day, like you've had a really tough week and you're scheduled to work again tomorrow, but you don't have a vacation on the book, so you're on the schedule. In some units, you can request to be placed on that call-off list in advance so that if they are overstaffed, they can call you and cancel your shift versus canceling someone who actually would rather work. So this will be called different things at different facilities. At my hospital, it's called a HRAD, H-R-A-D. And for the life of me, I have no idea what those letters stand for. Um, It might be called something else at your facility. But basically, it's you're being called off for low patient census. And the unit should have an equitable way of managing that so that because basically they're taking money away from you or forcing you to use PTO. So they should have an equitable way of tracking that so that you know, you're not expected to do this more often than anybody else so that everybody takes a turn getting called off and then the people that want to be called off get priority because, you know, someone doesn't want to be forced off work if they really want to work, especially if there's someone who's willing to say, I'll I'll take the day off. You can call me off. That's fine. Okay, so those were the general type of things that are really good to know and learn in your first five shifts. So now let's talk about nursing-related things. So in your first five shifts, focusing in on some key things around pharmacology is really, really important. So what I would do if I was going to work on a new unit, is I would make note of the most commonly used medications on that unit. And I would I would make flashcards or something so that I could learn those drugs from top to bottom. As you take care of patients in those first few shifts, just kind of keep a running list of the medications you're seeing over and over again and devote your attention to really learning them. So for example, if you're working on an ortho unit, you're going to be giving a ton of pain medications and not just opiates, other kind of pain medications too, like um, Ketorolac or um, IV acetaminophen, things like that. You're going to be giving stool softeners. You need to know the reversal agents. You'll be giving probably some antibiotics, either prophylactically or if some patients do come in with a infection with their, you know, maybe they, they're having an orthosurgery because they've got a, you know, a septic knee and you know, whatever. So a lot of antibiotics. So know those medications. If you're working on a telemetry floor, then you're going to be using a lot of cardiac-related medications like metoprolol, digoxin, lisinopril, furosemide, 
things like that. So know the meds used most often on your unit. Learn the heck out of them so that you understand, you know, what they are, how they work, why your patient's getting it, what to watch out for, so that you can have those things top of mind. Now, I'm not saying don't look up things as you go. If you ever have a single bit of doubt, you're always going to be looking these medications up, okay? Don't always rely on your memory, especially when you're brand new, but start learning these meds. You also can focus on developing a solid start of shift routine. This is really essential to setting yourself up to having a good shift. Just know that start of shift routines are going to vary based on what type of unit you work on and how many patients you have. Don't expect to get it correct right off the bat. Play around with it. Be willing to try new things. And then once you find a routine that works for you, that feels right, stick with it, give it some time and see how it goes into start of shift routines, I want you to go check out episode 96, where I actually dive into this in a lot more detail. Another nursing related thing to focus on in your first five shifts, and this is absolutely key, is to cue into that hypervigilance. Being a nurse means you are on for an entire shift and it takes an enormous amount of mental energy and focus. When you are on, you are hyper aware of everything going on around you. It's your job to be the observer of your patient and to notice things. And when you're brand new, especially if you're like me, where when I'm in a new environment, it's almost like there's too much input and everything's happening all at once and it's really hard to take things in. It's going to be very important that you focus and practice on staying in the moment and taking in what you are hearing, what you are seeing, what you're smelling, what you're touching, what you're observing. Get used to all the normal sights and sounds of the environment so that when something is different, you notice it immediately. A great example of this is the monitoring we use in the recovery room and in the ICU as well. So in the recovery room where I work now, airway, oxygenation, huge, huge issues, right? So in that department, we use continuous monitoring for our patients, and there are audible sounds that correlate with their oxygen saturation level. So in that environment, you get very, very used to very quickly what a normal, the pitch of it will change when it's abnormal. So you get used to the pitch or that tone of the normal SpO2, and then when a patient desaturates, the tone changes. So even without looking at the monitor, I know a patient needs to take a deep breath, get more oxygen, be woken up a little bit, simply based off this shift in tone. I can be, you know, in one part of the unit and I'll hear that tone shift six beds away and I'll look to make sure the nurse is there at the bedside because I've clued in to there's a change in patient condition somewhere and I need to go check it out, okay? So get really used to what's normal so that 
when you hear something abnormal, you're picking up on it. And that's a really big part of your hypervigilance. A really great example of this, and I was so proud. I was orienting a nurse who had been a nurse for a little while, I think working med surge or telly. I can't remember where he came from, but he was new to the ICU. And I was orienting him, and we were in our patient's room, and there was a new sound that just started happening out of the blue. And his head whipped around, put eyeballs on that patient like that, like immediately. And I was so proud of him in that moment because he was, even though he and I were standing there just having a conversation about the plan for the patient for that day, he clued into that sound immediately, eyeballs on the patient, because he was hyper aware that there was something new, something different, something unexpected happening in our patient's room. It had just started raining and the rain was hitting the window. It doesn't matter what it was. It was just off. It was different. It was new. He didn't look at the window. He didn't look at the monitor. He looked at the patient. And I just was like, yes, you got it. You're going to be a great ICU nurse. Another one you can focus on in those first five shifts, obviously, is do as many physical assessments as you can. Now that you're out of school and, you know, maybe your school had limitations on um, what kinds of patients' rooms you could go into. Maybe you weren't allowed to go into COVID rooms, whatever. Um, maybe you're working now with a patient population you never got to see in school. I want you to get your hands, your eyes, your ears on as many, many patients as you possibly can. Do as many physical assessments on as many body types, ages, and disease conditions with different types of equipment in place that you possibly can. Okay, that is key. Your ability to assess is your number one nursey skill because it's your assessment skills that is going to enable you to know when your patient is having trouble and also to know when your patient's getting better too. It's important to know that what you're doing is working just like it's important to know if your patient needs additional intervention. Another thing to focus on kind of along the same lines in your first five shifts is get your hands on as many different supplies and equipment as you can. Um, even in the very best of circumstances, clinical experiences are limited and it's kind of a luck of the draw that what you get exposed to that day in clinical is something that's actually happening that day in clinical. So now is your chance to get your hands on absolutely anything you can. If you're not comfortable doing a skill on a real life person, it's okay. Ask your preceptor to demonstrate that first one. And then with the second one, go for it with their supervision. That's typically how we do it. It's that, um, what is that? see one, do one, teach one kind of mentality and ask for feedback as you do it, after you do it, how can I get better at doing this, et cetera. You know, things to, you know, think about, hang those IV piggybacks, insert NG tubes, get that tube feeding going, start IVs, get suction set up in the room, change dressings, troubleshoot chest tubes, do whatever you can as much as you possibly can. And then the last little nursey related one for the first five shifts is to get comfortable with receiving and giving end of shift report. One of the key ingredients to successful report is using a brain sheet. You could hear it also called a report sheet as well. Don't be afraid to try a few different types. Your unit may have one that they have as a standard, maybe not. Don't be afraid to explore. I have some on my website. You can make your own. The recommended format, though, is to follow an SBAR 
format, focusing on the patient's problems that are being addressed. So for example, you probably don't need to go into the patient's appendectomy five years ago, but you do need to mention the nausea she's having today because it's an issue. You're treating it today, right? Her shoulder surgery from a year ago most likely isn't a factor in her care on this uh, admission, but the back surgery she had a week ago probably is. It's going to impact care. Chronic conditions like heart failure, hypothyroidism, that's probably, in many cases, not the reason the patient is admitted, but they are being addressed, so they are part of your report. For more information about using a brain sheet, check out episode 108. Okay, and then the last grouping of things are technology-related. So in your first five shifts, one of the most important things you can get, maybe comfortable is too strong a word, but more comfortable using is the EHR. So I want you to practice navigating the EHR. Yes, you will be charting assessments, interventions, and medications, but there's so much more in that EHR that I want you to get comfortable with finding, accessing, utilizing. There's a wealth of information in there. So click around and get really comfortable navigating. Some key things you want to know how to locate, for example, could be where to find their past 12 lead EKG tracings. Let's say you've got a patient who's got a long PR interval and you're like, hmm, no one's charted a prolonged PR interval, but they did have an EKG done three days ago. I'm going to go back and look at that and see if that was present then, or is this something new that I need to let somebody know about? Know where to locate signed surgical consents and signed blood consents. Part of your safety check when administering blood is to check off that you've checked for that signed blood consent and knowing where to find it. When you're there with another nurse who probably has 500 things of their own to do is really key, okay? Know how to find the patient's caregivers, significant others, daughters, sons, neighbor, whoever their person is. Know how to find their phone number if case you need to call them with an update or call them to get consent for something if your patient is unable to consent or call them to tell them a change in condition. Know how to find that information. Know where to document or locate a list of the patient's home meds. Very important that if the patient's taking certain medications at home, that they be continued in the hospital. Know where to find the patient's total fluid volume. A lot of patients get fluid overloaded in the hospital setting or dehydrated in the hospital setting. So you want to know their fluid balance. Where do you find that total? It's also really helpful to know how to determine how many blood transfusions the patient has had this admission. You also want to be able to locate the patient's blood type as well. Along those lines, how do you view lab results, including imaging studies. You may have a physician come by on rounds who wants to look at a chest x-ray and it's really helpful right there in the room to be able to pull up that image for them to look at. You want to know how to find the discharge summary from the patient's last admission. This can be really, really helpful to see the big picture for patients who are in and out of the hospital a lot dealing with chronic conditions and things like that. It's also really, really important that you know how to locate narrative notes like um, 
from the MD, from the surgeon who did the operation report you want to see or the operative report you want to see what did they do in that surgery, um, from other nurses, from other members of the team. Um, did the patient pass their swallow eval? Well, how do you find that out? You probably would go and look at the speech therapist note to see what they say about the patient's swallowing. Know where to find the history and physical, the H&P. And another very helpful thing is know uh, where to look to see what drugs and fluids and blood products the patient was given in the ER or the operating room because sometimes those things don't necessarily flow in to your flow sheets as you have them on the on the floors. So um, knowing what did we do for her in the ER, what did they get in the OR can be really helpful. So that is a key one, navigating the EHR. Okay, another thing with the EHR is knowing how to set it up for max efficiency. So chances are you'll be able to customize flow sheets and things like that that automatically show up when you log in. So I always would, if I, you know, I'm starting a new job, going to a new unit, I ask the people orienting me, what, how is your flow sheet? How is your EHR organized? And I look and I'm like, okay, those are some really good tips. So this will give you an idea of the flow sheets you'll use most often so you can customize your account for easy um, easy use, more proficient use. For example, with Epic, you know, you can customize flow sheets by wrenching in items and customizing the display. You also want to know how to find the IV compatibility checker that your hospital uses. I talk about this a lot when I'm talking about safe medication administration. And before you have two or more medications and fluids running through the same IV line, you have to know that they are compatible. So make sure you know where to find that compatibility checker. Ours, I know you can get two from the MAR because you go into the MAR, you click on the drug that you're giving, and there's a little link called LexiComp. And if yours is the same, you'll see that LexiComp. You click on LexiComp, it's going to bring up all the information about the drug. So I can look up a drug right there that I've never given before, or maybe I'm a little fuzzy on, see the monitoring parameters, the dosing, all the nursey stuff that I have to do associated with that for patient safety. And then there's a little tab there that says something IV compatibility checker. I click on that. I just did this the other day. I wanted to make sure that octreotide and lactated ringers could run concurrently because just because lactated ringers is a very common IV solution does not mean it's compatible with everything. And if you're going to have things running together, you need to check. So I wanted to check those before I uh, Y-sided, connected those things at the Y-site. So did it just the other day, did it a ton in the ICU. So bookmark this, you will use it often. I also want you to bookmark your hospital's pharmacology reference. If you don't want to have to go into the MAR to look up a med, if you can just bookmark the reference and look up meds when you have a free minute, this is really helpful, okay? So again, it's probably accessible from the MAR, but if it's not, have that bookmarked. And then you absolutely have to know where and how to look up policies. Get proficient at this because you're not going to have 30 minutes to go find the policy on enteral feeding. When you get back a residual of 300 mils, do you return it to the patient? Do you hold it? Do you give uh, metoclopramide? What do you do? You might need to go look up the policy. So 
Know how to do it quickly and efficiently. If you're doing a procedure or there's just anything you're at all unfamiliar with, chances are your hospital has a policy around that. And I've been a nurse for over 11 years now, and I look up policies on the regular, okay? Make note of any policies that you will utilize a lot and you know, download that, share a copy to your own user profile for even faster reference if you're able to do that. So first five shifts, that's a lot. There's a lot going on with that. I hope this helps you transition from new grad nurse into that more comfortable role. It will take some time. And I know as a new nurse, especially um, now, you know, maybe your nursing education got severely impacted by COVID and you had less clinical hours. It can take a while to feel comfortable. And I just want you to remember novice to expert. Remember Dr. Benner. Remember what she says, okay? You probably aren't going to feel proficient after your, you know, four-week orientation or however much orientation you're getting. You're still going to be very, very new. And give yourself some grace for that, okay? It's a pathway. It's been studied. (laughs) It's been verified. Novice to expert, okay? But I hope this helps. I made a fun new nurse bingo that, um, I don't know, it's just kind of fun. You can print that out and check things off as you conquer them or experience them. So you can click the link in the episode notes to be taken to that download. So have a great week and I will see you back here next week where we will be talking about meconium aspiration syndrome. So I'll see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.